Okay, we live in a society where everything claims to be life or death, don't we? We live in a city, this culture, where everything claims to be, purports to be urgent. Most of you probably know about that at work, don't you? The boss will give you that task that he says is got to be completed by the end of the day and probably lots of you have inboxes that are full of emails that purport say that they are of the most pressing and urgent matters lots of us know about that at work but a lot of us and perhaps all of us know about it in the home as well that amazon order is just so desperately urgent it's got to be next day delivery the item of clothing we've got to have now We live in a society where everything claims to be life or death. Everything claims to be urgent. When? Come on. If we're honest, most of these things are anything but. This evening, we're going to turn to 2 Kings 6 and 7. And tonight, what we'll see is not just some of the depths and the beauties, I think, of uh, God's work of salvation. But I think we will also see tonight that our job, our role as Christians, that of taking the good news to people who are lost, we will see tonight that above everything else in your life, everything else, this is the most urgent and the most pressing of tasks. So if you've got your Bible there, first thing that I want us to think about is the underestimated devastation of sin. The underestimated devastation of sin. Now, the obvious question we are asking tonight, I think, if you're a regular at uh, LCPC, is not just, why are we in Second Kings? We're asking, what is this? You know, if we just jump in the middle of an Old Testament book, we ask that, don't we? We ask, what's going on here? What, why? What, what's happening? But I actually think that the first verse that we read, chapter 6, verse 24, is really helpful. If you look at the name that's mentioned in verse 24. It actually really helps us to pinpoint what's happening here. Do you see the name? So we're told in verse 24 that Ben-Hadad was the king of Syria. So that tells us, believe it or not, that everything tonight, this section of scripture, this famine and so forth, it took place in about the middle of the fifth, no, wrong, middle of the ninth century B.C., That's where we are, a time when Jehoram was king of Israel. So we're going back a little bit, aren't we? This is the the middle of the ninth century. So at least we know when. But then what do we want to know? We want to know what is it actually, it's quite difficult in a dense chapter. What is it that happens? Look again at that verse. So it's verse 24, chapter 6. What happens? We're told of a siege, aren't we? So you've got the whole Syrian army. Okay, the whole of the, the, the enemy of God, the whole of the enemy of God. And what they do is they march on and they cut off this place called Samaria. And do you know what? I think Samaria kind of almost, almost lent itself to siege. Because Samaria, maybe you can picture it with me tonight. Samaria was a, a city on a hill. You know, it was perched there about 300 feet up and round about it were lots of valleys and so, you know in a way like you you know it, it kind of lent itself to siege and being cut off now if you're awake at all for the reason then you must 
surely agree that there's some strange details, right, about, about the seeds. I mean, do you see it's so severe was this famine that caused? These people in Samaria were paying through the nose for just the tiniest little morsel of food. So if you do the maths and work it out, they're paying months and months and months wages for, what was it? Did you notice? A donkey's head, months and months wages for the dung of doves. This is not an everyday thing that we read about, is it? People paying all their money to get some dove dung. So you can imagine it's bad. None of that compares with the next detail you read. And it, not trying to make too much of it, but it is a difficult detail to read. Do, do you see that from verse 26, we are told of a pact between two women in the city. And such is their starvation and their hunger. Do you see what they agree to do? They agree to kill and eat their children. These are mums, you know, mothers in this place. And they are agreeing to, to kill, to boil, to cook their own children. And do you see what happens when this pact is broken by one of the mums? Do you see what the, the woman does? I mean, just try and imagine the, the, the desperation. And she calls out to her king for help for help. And, and you see that this is a guy who is not just uh, useless. He's completely errant. Because look at verse 31. Do you see what he does? He's not just unable to help the woman. Do you see what he does? He blames Elisha. Like this king blames for all of the siege and the death all around him and the famine. He blames the only guy who could ever help. He blames the man of God. Isn't it awful? Isn't it awful? And so maybe right now you're asking, how is it, how is it possible that God could allow such a thing to happen? You asking that of the city of Samaria and their death and destruction. How can God allow this to happen? If you're asking that question, then I want you to hear this. Now, this is a verse. This is actually just part of a verse from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 28. And this is a promise from God. And it's a promise he makes for those who remain rebellious and remain in their unbelief. You ready for it? Ready for it. It will strike you. God says in Deuteronomy, if you continue in your unbelief, your enemies shall, guess what? besiege your town. If you continue in your unbelief, God says, you shall eat the fruit of your womb. You shall eat the flesh of your sons. Do you see it? What is happening in Second Kings chapter 6? This is the judgment of the almighty God. We look at it and say, what is happening here? What is happening here is the condemnation of God over sin and continued unbelief. Now, someone here right now, tonight, you're wondering, maybe visiting tonight, and you're wondering, what are we doing? Why on earth are we looking in the ninth century BC? And yet others in here, you see it, don't you? 
And now when you see the context in Deuteronomy, you see the lesson God is giving. Don't you? You see the parallel that's here, that in Second Kings, what is God doing? He's reminding us of the situation today of those who are under his condemnation. God, right now, through parallel here, reminding us of the consequences of continued unbelief. And what are they, friends? What is the plight of our city? It is people outside of Christ who are held captive and hostage by sin. Now, you see the parallel? I mean, people that you love and that I love, like people in our families and people we're working with and people we're seeing in the street and people who live beside us and our colleagues and our friends. And what is true of them? Do you see the parallel? They are starving spiritually. And they're, they are unable because of their sinful nature to feed themselves. And they're unable because of their sinful nature to feed themselves towards salvation. And don't you see the, the parallel with the king? They, they are in their blindness by their nature. They are blaming the only one who can help them. They are blaming the man of God, blaming the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't you begin to, in Second Kings, feel the weight and the gravity of the story of the situation. We are confronted with the consequences of unbelief. What are the consequences? Captivity. Spiritual captivity. Spiritual starvation. It is a people facing imminent spiritual death. But second, we see the undeserved deliverance of God. The undeserved deliverance of God. Now, it's said of Martin Lloyd-Jones. Do we know who Martin Lloyd-Jones is? Most of us do. It's said of Martin Lloyd-Jones, a famous Welsh minister who ministered in London many decades ago. Said of him that no matter uh, what circumstance he had to preach in, that this godly calm came over. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones before he began to preach. So no matter what it was, you know, like if it's the most stress, these things can be stressful, take it from me. But uh, no matter how stressful it was, if it was a funeral, a wedding, no matter who he's speaking to, hey, Martin Lloyd-Jones, a man of peace before he preached. Now, I, I, I like the link, the parallel we have with Elisha in this chapter because there's all this chaos and there's tears and there is mayhem in Samaria. And I don't know if you heard what was said in verse 32. Where's Elisha? Do you know where he is? He's at home and he's sitting down with the elders round about him. It's quite a nice picture in a sense, isn't it? Now, what we must ensure that we do right now is hear what Elisha is about to preach. So can I ask you to do this? And the boys and girls as well, we look at chapter 7, verse 1. It's very crucial to this whole story. So you see, remember the king. What's the king do? The king is blaming Elisha for all of this. And his messenger comes to Elisha. And how does Elisha respond? He makes this amazing prediction. Elisha, the man of God. Um, that though this famine has been going on clearly for a really long time, don't you think so? Like if they're at that point of desperation, don't you think it must have been gone on for a long, long time? But despite that, look at the prediction. He says, see, by this time tomorrow, everything's going to be fine. By this time tomorrow, in a sense, no worries. By this time tomorrow, 24 hours from now, Elisha predicts, 
all is going to be well. Now, I know, or I reckon I know what you want me to do right now, okay? I reckon you probably want me to, to, to go into the manner of these people's deliverance from the Syrians. Boys and girls, you listen to me. Did you get what happens? So you've got the city, it's up on a hill, do you, boys and girls? And they are cut off, and there's a famine, and everyone's upset, aren't they? And down below the city in the hill, you've got who? You've got the baddies, don't you? You've got the Syrians. And what happens? All of a sudden, there is this deafening racket. Boys and girls, all of a sudden, those baddies hear the sound of an impending army approaching. They hear horses and they hear chariots. And do you see what the baddies do? The baddies turn and they... They run away, they scarper, they flee, they get out of there, they're so scared. Leaving behind, not just the city on the hill free and redeemed, but they leave behind, I don't know if you notice, boys and girls, all of their wealth. They leave behind horses, they leave behind all of their silver and all of their gold. Now, we look at the manner of deliverance, friends, but to do that, this is what I want to do. I want us to get technical just for the shortest of moments. And I know, I know what happens when I say that. <laughs> I say, let's get technical for a moment. And what do you want to do? You want to boo and hiss and find some rotten fruit and veg and, and throw it at your ministers late on a Sunday night. And I say, let's get technical for a moment. But it is ever so important. See, we have talked before in the church about what is called a chiasm. Do you remember what this is? It's a device that a biblical author uses to make a point. He structures a portion of scripture in a certain way to show you something key, something really beautiful. Now, this is a chiasm. He begins, there's outer parallels. There's an outer, there's a beginning and an end of a section. And what the biblical author does is work in the way through a series of parallels to the central, usually theological point. Does everyone got that? I'll say it again, make sure you get it. So he starts at an outer edge. He works in the way through parallels. And then in the center, he reveals his beautiful theological truth. Everyone got it? Look at verse 3, please. You've got mention of these lepers. Who first, the first guys to discover that the uh, Syrians have gone. Now look at verse 3. In the text, you have got emphasis on the idea of a city gate. Do you see that in verse 3? Do you see that the city gate is emphasized? Well then look at verse 10 for a moment. You've also got the same thing. In the text, there's an emphasis on the gatekeepers. So friends, do you see what you've got in verse 3 and verse 10? You have got the outer edges of this chiasm. Do you remember what we've got to do now? We've got to move in the way. So look at verse 4. Look at verse 4. What do you have? You've actually got lepers planning or scheming. Isn't that what they do in verse 4? They want to switch sides to the Syrians. They want to go to, to the baddies effectively, don't they? So there's the lepers scheming, they're planning, they're plotting. And then look at verse 9. It's, it's the same. It's exactly the lepers again, planning and plotting. Then we're left with one last pair. Look at verse 5. 
In verse 5, you've got the lepers taking action. They move, they go to the city and camp and have a guess. Have a guess what you've got in verse 8. You've got the other side of the pair, the lepers taking action. Friends, do you see what's happening? We work our way through a series of pairs. We work our way into the center. And what are we left with? Look at the first words of verse 6. And this is the heart of the whole section. Theologically, this is everything. This is the pearl in the center. Look at the first words, verse 6. For the Lord, the Lord has made the army of the Syrians here. For the Lord has done this. The Lord made the Syrian army disperse. One commentator says this. This whole episode has been carefully crafted to place God's role at the very heart of the story. You know what we could do? We could. We could show how the whole of Second Kings makes the same structural point at this moment. Do you know Second Kings? Some of you do, do you? Do you, do you think about the background here? You know, Elisha performs all these miracles. You know the stories. You learned this in Sunday school, didn't you, some of you? I mean, the Shunammite woman's son. Yeah? What else? Raising the axe head. All the miracles that Elisha performs and naming the Syrian, even. Right? Elisha. What does Elisha do in this story? Not do anything. I mean, Elisha predicts something. He prophesies. Didn't, do you see? All oh, the attention. All the attention is on, on God here. And we could focus on that, the structure of Second Kings. Ah, I don't want to do that. I, I want to show you what this means for you. Because I ask you, friend, tonight, assess yourself. How do you stand before God? Are you trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ tonight? Is he your king? Could you have taken the vows that, that Harriet took last Sunday? Could you say, yes, Lord, you're my Lord. Could you do that? Do you not see in this what the Lord Christ has done for you? you? You realize, do you, Christian friend, where you once were? You lived. You you dwell in Samaria. Isn't that it? That you were utterly spiritually starving. You were destitute. You were famished. And you could do nothing about it. And what has Christ Jesus done for you? What has he done? He scattered the enemy army for you. And he has destroyed the powers and the principalities. He's done it all for you. And yet, isn't it the case that, that all too often we place all of this emphasis on ourselves. Like I know, in a church like this, come on, a reformed church, theologically, intellectually, we assent to the fact that salvation is God's work. But practically, how does it work out in your life? Isn't it true we look down our nose at people who, who do not have faith in Christ? We do that. We, we look down our nose at atheists and agnostics and, 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 and Muslims. And yet, what have you just sung? The Lord himself has done all of this. And what have you read? For the Lord has made the army of the Syrians disperse. The Lord has done it. And I ask you, how has God delivered you? Was it through the noise of an army? No. It was through the... 
regular beating of nails being hammered in a cross. How has Christ Jesus delivered you from sin, from that desperate spiritual starvation? Was it the noise of chariots and horses? No. It was his very last breath at Golgotha. We have been delivered and it is a work of God alone. Third thing, we see here the undelivered disclosure of the good news. The undelivered disclosure of the good news. For just a moment, we got to deal with the lepers. I mentioned just a second ago, don't we, the lepers, hopefully you picked up on what happened at the start of chapter 7. The lepers, of course, are outside the city a little bit, outside the city gate. Of course, they are lepers, and they are scheming. They've got this plan. You picked up on it? Yeah? The lepers are thinking, right, okay, we don't have a chance here. Let's switch allegiance. Let's go the Syrians down the hill. And they scarper down the hill. They go the enemy. And what do they find, these lepers? These four lepers, they find that that, that these enemies of God have dispersed. Now, I, this is not nonsense, okay? Not nonsense. I have thought long and hard this week about how to speak about and convey to you the depths of the leper's first impulse. And words fail me for it. But I tell you this, if you live with this for a week, this portion of scripture, you end up thinking that what these lepers do is one of the worst impulses in all of human history And I want you to notice it. Look at verse 8 with me. I plead with you to do it. I mean, what do they do? You see, they come down from this starving city. They come down to the enemy camp. And they find them gone. Look what they do. Look at it. When these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent. And you think about this. All these people are starving and dying. And they eat and they drink. And they carry off the silver. And what is repeated? Repeated for you. They hide the silver and gold. And to start with, anyway, what did they say? Nothing. Now, I really want you to engage with this. And I really want to ask you this. Do you agree with me that that is just the most wicked thing? I mean, we have all seen on our TVs, right? We've all seen pictures of famine. Haven't we? We like you know from years ago, and it's pumped in our in our living rooms as we watch it, and we see these pictures of these kids, and they're 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 starving, and there's tears, and it's misery. Do you know? I really believe this is worse. I mean, it has to be worse. Yeah, like we're told that there's lots of people who are, who have died, but moms are eating their kids here. Like surely you just now agree when I say to you, this impulse, not to tell them of the riches, not to tell them where there's food, not to tell them that the enemy is gone. Surely you you sit and you say, it's awful, it's sinful, it's wicked. Do you? Please tell me you do. And yet, are we not guilty of something much worse? 
I mean, you think for a moment of the sin and the wickedness of the contemporary church, just for a moment. And you think about what we know. Think about just what we've looked at a moment ago. This city. And they are eternally starving. And they can't do anything about it. And they're facing imminent spiritual death. Millions of people. What else do we know in here? We know that there's good news for them. Like we know that there's news of the riches of God available. We know there is news of redemption. We know news of food, the bread of life for these people. And what does the contemporary church do? Is it not the same as the lepers? Do we not keep this good news of deliverance to ourselves? We store the riches where? In our church buildings. Not a tent, but we store all of this riches, the silver and the nourishment. We, we store it in our homes, in our Bible studies, our house groups. We store this good news in our hearts. And so surely we see what we must do. That we've got to follow the next steps with the, the lepers here. We've got to repent of our silence. We've got to go at people. We've got to tell them good news. We've got good news. There's freedom available. And maybe, I know tonight you say to me, ah, but it's beyond us. We are not equipped. This is a task too difficult. It's too hard. I do not have the words. I cannot do this. And then I remind you who God uses here to spread the good news. Not kings, not princes, not preachers. Lepers. Lepers. I mean, men who were not just marginalized, men who were not just unclean and weak and despised, we've already just seen, they were rebellious. Do we not hear the word of God, the message for us? Regardless of our status, our shame, our standing, we must not remain silent. The church must proclaim the good news, the deliverance God has worked. And then we end with the last thing. So we see what? We see the underestimated devastation of sin, the undeserved deliverance of God, the undelivered disclosure of the good news. And then last, we see the unimaginable disaster of unbelief. Because I know some of you think I've made a mistake. I know some of you would put me up on it later on that I have not dealt sufficiently with the main character of this story. So I'm going to give you two places to look at your text just before we end. Look at verse 2, chapter 7. Verse 2, chapter 7. Who's the character? Look at it. Boys and girls, you look at it too. We have the captain. This man, I haven't mentioned, this man who comes to Elisha from the king, a man who doesn't believe, that's the key thing, he does not believe the promise that Elisha makes. And because of that, do you see what happens here? Elisha promises that he will not taste of the coming deliverance. So here is a man, and it is promised to him, you are going to see with your eyes the deliverance of this city. You are going to witness... 
this redemption, this freedom of the city, you're going to see it this time tomorrow, but you will have no part in it. And then look at the second place is verse 17. You will read it with a tear in your eye. We read at the point of the city's deliverance, the city's escape. This captain, in direct fulfillment of God's word, do you see it? He was trampled underfoot in the chaos, and he dies. And you don't get a prize for guessing where I'm going. As we end here, I have to speak to you in here who stand right next to that captain because of your unbelief. For those in here who are not resting in the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work for your salvation. And really, I just ask you this. Second Kings chapter 6 and 7, doesn't it move you a little? I mean, you see why it should move you? You are shown by God in these verses your future. If you are unbelieving, you are shown by God what lies ahead. That on the final day, like this man, what an awful thought this is. But you're going to see with your eyes the deliverance of God's people. And you will have no part in it. Isn't that awful? You will see with your eyes the joy in the face of believers as they see their Savior. And you're going to look on. And you're going to see the joy as they run out of the city. And as they approach their Redeemer, you're going to see their joy as they (laughs) embrace the silver and gold and the riches of heaven. You will see their joy, their deliverance at long last from their wicked, sinful nature. And you will have no part in it. And in that moment, you will be trampled underfoot by the righteous wrath of a holy God. Does it not move you? If it does, it's so simple. Tonight, what you must do is repent of your sin and come to the Lord Jesus Christ, his arms outstretched to you, Repent of your wickedness. Turn to him for forgiveness, for cleansing. And do you know what happens? Do you know what happens right now? Do you know what you can say of tonight? You can say the same as one of the lepers in verse 9. The text tonight can be on your lips. Do you see what he says? Today is a day of good news. Friends, may it be that in each of our hearts this evening. We leave this place praising the name of God. Why? For his great work of deliverance. We are free. Let's pray.
O God in heaven, when we look to these lepers, we feel so utterly rebuked to see these men in your word burying away the good news of deliverance. We see this mirror, we see ourselves in this reflection. So Lord, we come to you and we confess our sin. We confess that we too readily store the good things of grace to ourselves, to each other in here, but not to a perishing, spiritually starving city. Lord, would you propel us out, not out under a weight of guilt or even duty, but out of a love for the lost and a love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, how much more we pray that those in here tonight who do not know you and who stand like that captain to face your judgment and condemnation because of unbelief, we pray that you would bow them to yourself. We pray even now, Lord God, we pray as a congregation that your Holy Spirit would be at work, that there would be a work of repentance and faith done. Oh God, how we long to see that. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.